The Chinese government, in effect, censors much of what comes out of the Hollywood film industry. They don't do this, of course, through direct control. They do it through their enormous economic leverage. This has to be one of the more consequential stories of the next century. The rise of Hollywood mirrored a nation on the rise. But all too often these days, China is dictating to America how high and how far. Today is part one of our interview with Eric Schwartzel, the Wall Street Journal's best-known oracle on the world of entertainment, who literally wrote the book on what's happening, why it's happening, and what it means on the world stage of politics and power. From Ballard Studios in Washington, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the same party. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Eric, welcome to the show. I just finished reading Red Carpet. I know I'm probably 16 months behind publication date, but wow. I mean, I read that cover. To, I couldn't put it down because of what it says, not just about entertainment, but really about all of us. It had all sorts of takeaway morals. So hmm. let's start, I think, by setting the stage. I'm going to throw it to Justin to give our audience a sense of history here. Well, sure. So there was a massive change from Mao's cultural revolution to Ding Xiaoping's fundamental approach and their interest in Hollywood. Can you just give our listeners a sense of that transition from one period to another? Oh, certainly. Well, first of all, thank you both for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to talk about this book. I also agree that I think, you know, one, one thing the book taught me is that the movies are this unlikely vessel to understand so much about the world and humanity, frankly. And so I'm, I'm eager to get into the into the nitty gritty here. I think your question, Justin, is, is a good one, because the differences between Mao and Deng Xiaoping, obviously, that could be a whole other podcast. But <laughs> when it comes to film, and I would say art in general, one element, critical element of Mao Zedong's campaign was control of the message, right? And the use of propaganda, the deploying of propaganda. Mao at one point had even said, there is no such thing as art for art's sake. Art should only serve the state. Now, Deng Xiaoping was also running a communist regime, right? So there was a similar apparatus of, of propaganda by the time he had taken charge. But as we all remember, or I guess I should say, as I've studied and maybe you remember, <laughs> Deng Xiaoping ushered in this broader economic resurgence and this broader sort of flirtation with capitalist elements and introducing capitalist elements into the communist regime. And actually, that is the origin that I think is really necessary to understand the tension today between China's relationship with Hollywood, because Deng Xiaoping wanted to not just let Western media companies into the country, but he also wanted to bolster China's economy through letting airlines in, through letting tech firms in, through letting retail in. And that 80s and 90s shift toward a more capitalist society while maintaining a communist ideology is really why Hollywood found itself navigating so many tripwires when it was trying to do business there. So I think the Mao to Deng Xiaoping transition is critical in understanding just a, how it allowed 
the economic access that mm. that would eventually include Hollywood, mm. but also B, that the propaganda prioritization that Mao had established never really went anywhere. And it's still seen today. I mean, you can read speeches that Mao gave back in the 40s or 50s, and you can use it to understand how the spigot of Western culture and influence is controlled in Beijing today. The People's Republic of China works in five-year plans and 100-year visions, right? I think you wrote that the 12th five-year plan was the one that put into play entertainment, essentially, as a primary goal of the nation. That was a recognition, right, of all those years that preceded it as China started to find its way in the entertainment business and started to become more and more not just influential, but frankly, controlling of Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. And I think two critical things I'd say there, Adam. One, you're right that the the CCP operates in five-year plans. And oftentimes, the tension between those five-year plans and a Hollywood built on quarterly returns (laughs) was apparent over and over and over again, right? And second of all, I think when it comes to the lessons I learned as, as something of a China watcher writ large, I think one thing that those five-year plans and studying those five-year plans in retrospect have taught me is that China, I think, is often portrayed as this kind of opaque black box whose motivations can never really be quite clear. I actually found in studying at least the, the cultural element of this that the CCP can often be quite apparent in saying what it wants to do and what it plans to do. Mm-hmm. And the five-year plan that you referenced is a perfect example where the CCP inserted into the five-year plan that they wanted to develop their entertainment industry. They wanted to build a domestic entertainment product. And, And that unleashes all kinds of opportunities, not just because it signals to businesses within China that, hey, if you want to invest in the media business, you're going to have the government's backing. But it also unleashes all kinds of economic perks for those who want to pursue that business, too. So you see how the system kind of works in concert, right? The government releases a five-year plan. Suddenly, businesses can invest safely in those areas of interest, and, and it snowballs from there. Hollywood, during various times, has been viewed as an extension of the State Department or the Defense Department and was very pro-American in how it presented its entertainment. Can you share with us some of the examples that you mentioned in your book? Oh, sure. I mean, this this was something that was so fascinating to study was how really, I would say, starting around World War II, and certainly with the Marshall Plan, we started to see the U.S. government working quite closely with Hollywood, not just in, you know, shipping movies around the world that spoke to the virtues of democracy and free expression and so on, but also in the case of the Second World War, producing films that could be shown as newsreels to families, that kind of, you know, a sort of very patriotic kind of jingoistic messaging that they could show to sort of curry support for the war effort within American borders. And I think that Americans since then have kind of assumed that Hollywood should do America's bidding. And that because we know Hollywood to be the ultimate example of American soft power, that there should be a kind of, if not an overt relationship, then an an implicit one. And that Hollywood should not do anything that would undermine the American, you know, project or do anything that that would undermine or not endorse the American way. Now, I will say, though, I I think that, that that is the opinion of a lot of Americans. 
I don't think it's the opinion of Hollywood. I think mm. since, you know, certainly the the 80s and 90s, when we saw a lot more of a corporatization of Hollywood, Hollywood became much more about satisfying shareholders and larger conglomerates. And very few executives who I know here in Los Angeles see some kind of patriotic element to their job, right? They see themselves as stewards of certainly an American product, but they are stewards of global brands and they have to kind of operate in a borderless world. And so I think whenever the news of some kind of censorship at the hands of the CCP emerges, one of the reasons it really strikes Americans, I think, at an emotional core is because they've sort of understood or downloaded a version of Hollywood that is going to do America's bidding and not necessarily kowtow to other regimes. But isn't it interesting because at one point Hollywood was putting out very pro-American content. It seems today that the content is probably more influenced by maybe social justice considerations, potentially, which isn't necessarily always favorable of America's history. And then you've got in dealing in China, basically subjecting themselves to Chinese censorship. So it's kind of interesting how, I don't want to say it's flipped, but you probably have a lot more content coming out of Hollywood that's, I'm going to use in air quotes, critical of America than you do of critical of China and communist China. Some defenders would say that's the most American approach of all, right? You know, right now we're in this moment that we can talk about where this has become a bipartisan concern, China's influence on Hollywood. When I was writing the book, I knew that it would be, it might prove popular among Republicans. I was, I seem to be taking on China and Hollywood, target one, target two, but it is much more now, I think, as we talk, a bipartisan concern. And one thing that will often come up is the question of, should there be some kind of legislative action taken to prevent studios from censoring for Chinese audiences. And I think the queasiness comes whenever you realize how Chinese a response that would be, that (laughs) it's China's system that is telling studios and executives and production companies within China what movies to make, what messages not to, to convey. And you're right, I think the question that you're asking audiences to sort of ask and answer for themselves is that, let's say you're in a foreign country and you see a movie about China and everything's pristine and everything there is is sort of a very politically sanctioned message. And then you watch a movie made in the US and let's say to use your example, it's about protests or it's another movie where it's revealed that the vice president is the bad guy all along. Or there's some kind of messaging that you would think maybe would undermine or present a bad, put our, our worst face forward, right? Right. What you're asking audiences to ask and answer is, well, at least in America, you can tell a story like that, that the telling itself is, is an endorsement of the system. What it's important to remember, though, is a lot of the movies, the American film industry right now is very lopsided. Fewer and fewer titles are accounting for more and more of the box office. So a lot of, a lot of the movies that we're talking about here are the big 250, $300 million productions that are by virtue of their expense designed to appeal to everyone everywhere, Democrats, Republicans, CCP members, you know, Parisians. I mean, they're supposed (laughs) to appeal to everyone, not necessarily some kind of, uh, you know, political slice of the American electorate. You wrote that China was a market too big to ignore and too lucrative to anger. So let's fast forward a little bit. Knowing that, 
courtesy of what you also provide in the book, films like Dirty Dancing, big blockbuster hits in America, 70% of the sales were overseas. The amount of money being generated for Hollywood, not in America, was really kind of an eye-opener. But now let's go to the film, Seven Years in Tibet, where Brad Pitt was recruited, I think one of his best roles, I think it was a very entertaining film, to make this film that clearly was hitting up against every sensitivity that you were really expressing in this book. So I want to play a clip from that movie and then come back to you for your reaction. I have a movie projector and films. I want to build a movie house mm. here at the Potala with seats and everything. Seats would be advisable. Can you build it? Excuse me? Can you build a movie house for me? We can have conversations on many topics. I would like to learn about the world you come from. For example, where is Paris, France, and what's the Molotov cocktail, and who's Jack the Ripper? Kundun. Mm. <laughs> I love, I love the Molotov cocktail, right? I think I quote that. I quote that line in the, um, in the book too. It was, it was. I mean, that that scene is like an author's dream. You've got like the movie in question with the character talking about the power of film. I'm like, oh, I can work with that. Yeah. <laughs> I can work with that. But as you know, at about the same time, Morton Scorsese came out with a film called Kondun, right? Both of them really kind of focused on Tibet, the Dalai Lama. How did those two films, in a way, change everything in terms of our relationship with China, not just the entertainment, but the relationship overall? Let's start with your point about Dirty Dancing and movies of the 70s and 80s having really the lion's share of their revenue come from overseas audiences. That was the case far earlier than I think a lot of us realized, that, that the overseas audience was, was critical to Hollywood's growth and Hollywood's development as kind of a global medium. And it wasn't until the early 90s, around 1994, that access to Chinese moviegoers existed at all. Because mm. after Mao's revolution, Mao Zedong was not letting Dirty Dancing into his theaters. That was not exactly, <laughs> wasn't exactly comport with his, his ideology. <laughs> Several reasons why, I guess you could say. But Hollywood kind of expanded around the world. And China was the sort of dark side of the moon. There was no access there. It was not really considered or thought of until 1994, when, because of Justin's earlier point, because of Deng Xiaoping's reforms, you started to see American movies let in sort of a piecemeal basis. And so in 1996, when Seven Years in Tibet and Kundin are put into production, mm. no one in Hollywood is worried about angering China no one in Hollywood is worried about losing that access because that access seemed so non-existent in a way. Mm -hmm. And so when Chinese officials learn that these movies have been put into production, and as you said, Adam, that they are exploring really the third rail of Chinese politics here, mm -hmm. they make it very clear immediately that they are not going to stand for this. And Kundin was being released by the Walt Disney Company. And Seven Years in Tibet was being released by Sony Pictures. And they made it very clear that if these movies were to proceed and be released, that not only would those movies not be shown in China, that was never a question, mm -hmm. but they would bar the parent companies of those studios from doing business in the country. So suddenly, these movies that were relatively small investments, I think maybe 40 to 60 million bucks a piece... They became these radioactive elements that suddenly jeopardized the future of Sony Corporation in China and the future of the Walt Disney Corporation in China. And so 
suddenly Sony's wondering if they're going to be able to make VCRs and TVs in the country (laughs) if this movie comes out. Walt Disney Company, which had already been thinking about the prospect of building a theme park at some point in the country, is seeing that future jeopardized. And you ask, why were these case studies so important? Well, it's because this happened kind of in full view of everyone in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very tense debate because both of the studios knew that it might help their ultimate cause to cancel the production, but they knew the blowback that they would receive Mm -hmm. domestically and from the creative community if they did that. So they had to release the films. Both corporations, all involved in the films, were banned from doing business in China overnight. Again, as China said it would do, right? It sort of followed through on that threat. And it wasn't until a year later when Sony led a delegation on what some executives called an apology tour to kind of mend relations. And the CEO of Disney, Michael Eisner, flew to Beijing and met with a CCP official. And and another kind of, you know, moment like that's like in an author's dream is that there's a transcript of the meeting between Michael Eisner and the CCP official he was meeting. I have to assume he did not know this meeting was being recorded. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But he says, the bad news is that we made the film. The good news is that hardly anybody watched it. And he essentially throws the creative ethos of his company under the bus in order to regain access to the Chinese market for the infraction of making this film. Now, these movies, neither of them were box office bonanzas and they would have come and gone. I think the the lasting lesson of them, though, was that they immediately taught every studio in Hollywood not to touch certain Chinese topics that that would be the problem right and and you see how quickly this happens because it only takes one it only takes one example like that Mm. for all the studios to absorb the lesson there's a chinese dialectic that says kill the chicken to scare the monkeys basically if you can Mm. find a high profile example and you can sort of elevate that example and amplify that example it teaches everyone a lesson and that's what's happened and it's safe to say there's been no movie about the dalai lama Put into production since then and right. and some of the actors involved including brad pitt struggled for years afterwards to mend relations with mm. chinese audiences because of their involvement in those films was there any type of internal dissension let's say any of these hollywood companies about the compromises that they have to make oh, yeah. by accepting the censorship by basically saying we're not going to touch anything that the Chinese Communist Party will be upset with us over. Because Google famously left China and decided we're going to seed the market. We don't want to do business in China because we don't want to generate results for our search engine that are going to have to subject Mm -hmm. themselves to censorship. Has that been a debate at all in Hollywood? Or has everyone in Hollywood basically just said, let's just play the game and let's just accept the censorship from the Chinese Communist Party? A lot of it, I think, has been out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, I've heard stories of executives and directors saying, all right, just don't just don't tell me what they're going to do to the movie. Like, just, <laughs> you know, just release it, do whatever. And then there are other directors. Quentin Tarantino is one. Christopher Nolan is another who are powerful enough to push back on any changes that the CCP censors want to make to their films in order to gain release. That echelon of director is is pretty few and far between. You know, it's a pretty it's pretty small echelon. So that doesn't happen too often. What I've seen since, though, is that as the noise 
has gotten louder and as political pushback has gotten louder and as relations between the two countries has grown more strained and unpredictable studios are not i think they're not pulling a google anytime soon and saying we're not going to do business there but what they're doing is they're just trying to reduce risk as much as possible so that means not making a movie because you think it will do well in china not making a movie specifically for chinese audiences and and when it comes to accounting how much money you expect out of china a lot of studios today are just putting a zero in that column and treating the market like found money because you don't know if you're going to gain access you don't know if beijing's going to reject you outright for some larger macro political reason. So I think that's what we're seeing now is just sort of a reduction of risk, not necessarily a philosophical turning. A year and a half ago, Sony Pictures released the blockbuster Spider-Man No Way Home. Chinese authorities wanted to edit out the final battle scene because it featured the Statue of Liberty. They considered it too patriotic, too pro-American, and therefore a threat to China's plan to win the narrative war with America. To their credit, Sony said take a hike, then made $1.9 billion in box office sales without China. Unfortunately today, this is more the exception than the rule. Next week, part two of the China Hollywood story and how it's now playing out across the world.